Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Surgeon. Anthony Child's been a linchpin of UK techno since the early 90s. He was a resident at the famously intense House of God parties and developed a distinct take on techno for labels like Downwards and Trezor. Speaking live from this year's Deckmantle Festival, Child spoke to Aaron Coultate about his current obsession, live improvisation, before taking apart some of the formative experiences that made him one of techno's most revered figures. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Surgeon is up next. Enjoying the uh, the conference so far. I think we've had some pretty excellent interviews, and thanks to all the interviewees who have been involved. We've got a bit of a special treat for you to uh, round things out for the day, and that special treat is uh, Anthony Child, who most of you will know and love as Surgeon. Tony's been DJing since 1992. He's been making music for uh, even longer than that. He was there at the birth of uh, UK techno, and he's just as influential now in the contemporary techno scene as he was in the uh, the halcyon days of, of Downwards and the Birmingham sound. His list of collaborators includes Regis, Blawan and uh, Lady Starlight. Tony, hi. Uh, hello. Hello. Welcome. I mean, I'd like to start by talking about the evolution of your, your DJing and your live shows. You've said that your sort of current obsession is improvisation in, in live performance. Can you tell me how that sort of came about um, and why you've gone down that route? I think the whole thing about like the DJing side of performance, it's uh, it's been like a long kind of ev- evolution for me. I've, I've always been interested in trying out different uh, technologies when they become available, but it's kind of a, just use them as a, as a means to an end. But um, I kind of found that I was incorporating more and more kind of live hardware gear into the DJ performance and almost without me knowing it, one day it just ended up being live. It just it wasn't possible to call it DJing anymore, really, because there was no there was no pre-recorded music involved in it. So that to me is the kind of that's the kind of uh, line where something is or isn't DJing, as it were. Can you break down that 
evolution for us because you, you sort of you DJed with Ableton for around a, a decade and then yeah, sort of yeah. started incorporating modular in, um, synthesis. Yeah, that. I mean, I, I start I I got into the modular stuff just for the uh, intending to use it in the studio. Well, it was just so much fun. I brought it to a gig and it was just too much fun to not to not do that really. I don't know. I think uh, I think we talked about this before about how. It was literally one day I woke up and realised that having the computer there, DJing as it were, that was the thing that was getting in the way of taking this sort of uh, way of performing further. That was determining the structure of what I was doing and to be truly freeform and more improvisational, I had to get rid of that uh, imposed structure part of it. It's all very, It's all very technical, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the laptop side of things, was that you just, I guess, a safety net that you kind of had, or how, what, why was it? A, why did it become a roadblock yeah, for you? Yeah, I I had it there, like you say, I had it there as a safety net, as, a, as something to fall back on. Okay, I you know, if it's all going wrong, I can play a track like uh, in a conventional DJ sense. But really, I literally woke up one morning and realised that to take it further, I had to get rid of that. I had to approach it with without fear. That's that's the really the important thing. And it seems to be like a process where people maybe sort of use a laptop and then they're like, okay, I want to get into hardware or modular performance. What is it about that that's actually appealing to you right now? The technical side of things, it's just a means to an end to me and it's just part of, it's just whatever my kind of journey is. And that's not to say everyone has to use a computer or not a computer or CDs or module or whatever it, it's kind of it's just a means to an end to to live expression and that's that's the thing about the 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 kind of hardware live improvised thing for me somehow it's connecting so directly to the fundamental aspect of you know the rawness of electronic music and also it it kind of readdresses a balance between the human and the machine which is always the most interesting, for me, the most interesting relationship in electronic music is it's not just pure machine, it's, it's the relationship between the human and the machine and, and somehow I've got the balance more kind of to the human side doing live improvisation with machines instead of uh, playing back music. So does that kind of open up the possibility of like human error or like... Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I think... That's a really important thing that, that an audience picks up on. Uh, there's a much greater sense of risk and danger. I feel like that creates an excitement that the audience participates in a, a risk. You know, this may all go horribly wrong and that's fun. And uh, I don't know, I, as an audience, I like to see someone out on the edge. You know, it may, they may crash and burn completely. Like how close do you allow yourself to get to like basically doing a, a crash and burn while you're playing in front of a crowd like how how <laughs> how far do you push it it's because in the moment when i'm playing i can my mind is off i'm just going with just the feelings and intuition just i just follow the music and i'm hearing it and experiencing it directly like in the same way as the audience and that's what you know i feel such a close connection with the audience i'm in the same ride that they are and um I really enjoy that and I think there's a sense they get of the same kind of experience. I mean, how much preparation do you do or, or sort of like in terms of tweaking the equipment or just thinking about 
the live set before it actually happens? I try to prepare a system that's versatile and I, I know it's like having a creating an instrument to, to improvise with and as long as I've got a good idea how to use that I don't know I practice using the instrument I play with but I don't I don't kind of literally rehearse anything I just turn up and just hope it comes together it always has done so far but you know there's always five minutes before I play there's always a moment where I'm thinking why why have I done this to myself this is just a nightmare I'm like standing on the edge of a cliff and I've got to jump off this cliff but you know it, it's it's always worth it and I'm always really glad that I've done that but there's always that kind of moment of panic before I start thinking I have absolutely nothing that sounds scary but it also sounds kind of thrilling yeah absolutely it's it may, lets me know I'm alive so you've basically stopped DJing in the traditional sense yeah. at this point do you miss that well it wasn't like an intentional thing it just kind of happened a lot as part of the evolution this is just what i'm exploring at the moment really and it's not to say djing's never come never going to come back but i always quite enjoyed uh, playing around with you know what the structure of djing and what people found acceptable or not and that was always fun and i'm sure i'll find some other way of doing it yeah I mean I guess you had a sort of a radio show for a while and in terms of in past interviews you've said like the key thing interest in you DJing was just a basic simple desire to share music you love with other people and I guess maybe a radio show is another way to do that yeah but yeah so how did that sort of come together the radio show yeah yeah it was, um, it was with rents for a while yeah, yeah. I, I was approached about doing a radio show and it, it just really came at the right time I wasn't really doing a lot you know, I had the way I was DJing very in place and uh, I wasn't really doing a lot of studio productions at the time. So I had the time to devote to that, to do a monthly show and, um, you know, trying to source two hours of new music each month. And uh, it was a really good way of supporting a lot of new artists and, and you know, unsigned artists. And, and um, you know, I really enjoyed that. And I it was a new a new thing for me to learn. I'd never done a radio show. I wasn't used to like talking, you know, and it was just fun and just being absurd with like saying hello to people's cats and things like that, you know. Yeah, I like the cat thing. Yeah, yeah. But it was really good fun. And, um, you know, I felt like there was a time where I'd kind of established a format and that's almost when it's time for me to, to do something else. So is, is there like a gap there, I guess, in terms of like not traditional DJing, not hosting a radio show and basically not sharing other people's music or are you kind of fully content in doing your own thing in the studio and live performance? Um, yeah, I am right now. I mean, it's touching on what we talked about a little while ago about I feel like well, it's about sharing an experience with the audience and, and you know, going on that ride together. So to me in that way, that's, that's the element of sharing involved in the way that I perform now. I guess another in terms of sharing uh, music with people is like through collaboration and as I sort of mentioned in in my introduction you've got a few interesting collaborations sort of bubbling away uh -huh. um, I guess one of the more surprising or interesting stories last year was your collaboration with Lady Starlight can you tell me how you first sort of crossed paths with her well what was it a couple of years ago I went to a Lady Gaga concert in Birmingham as as you do and uh, I was really confused the support act which was Lady Starlight came out and started playing live, really raw, 
straight up techno and it's like I didn't re I really didn't expect to hear this I was confused the crowd was confused and she gets on the mic and just starts telling them this is techno I'm playing it live and um, she mentioned me and I was totally surprised and then we ended up getting to meet afterwards just stayed in contact and really found that we I mean I can see that from the outside people are find this really bizarre but in actual fact our thoughts about a lot of music performance just many quite deep attitudes about music and performance are very very similar disruptive kind of punk attitude and trying to like looking at frameworks and formats and seeing how you can pervert and and twist them and bend them and so did that first meeting kind of open a sort of musical dialogue between you how, how did you kind of keep in touch after that yeah we just stayed in touch and then I think their tour was coming back round to Birmingham again and got to hang out a bit on the off days between the tour and uh, we just thought yeah that <laughs> that would be fun why don't I play on the next gig with you and then um, and so we did the Birmingham one and then we ended up doing the last one the Paris one that was like filmed or whatever and it was just um i don't know um also the fact that it was so absurd you know i love i love the absurd you know that's a big influence i don't know it's it's the universe is absurd so yeah i mean the um i guess the absurdity of of you and lady starlight sort of warming up for lady gaga you're wearing a coil t-shirt yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's amazing it's just so absurd but it's to me it's like it's it's just punk rock or something it's just so unexpected and it just fucks people up and they don't know what they don't know how to react to it and and to me a situation where you smash people in the face with something so absurd i think it really holds it, it's about holding a mirror up to people and really their reaction is more about them than it is about me or the situation and i, I love to see just people didn't know what to do and yeah, it was amazing. I, I mean, did you get a, a chance to sort of glimpse up at the crowd when you were playing those sets? Well, the, and crowd, the crowd was really good, actually. Um, a lot of people ask about how it was playing to that crowd, and um, it was very pure because they weren't there for techno, they were there for Lady Gaga. You know, so their reaction was very pure, and they didn't, they maybe, they probably, most of them probably never even heard techno or knew what it was, so it was very sort of pure and open and they didn't bring any expectations. They had no idea that that's what they would hear. So it was, it's kind of such a different situation. So I, I found it, I found it interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, you got a quote here of something that you said about that collaboration. It's, you said it was, um, it's been a chance to really provoke people and force them to assess their ideas and connections between different styles of music. I mean, it's easy to kind of read this into a way of like, Oh, yeah, this is like freaking out a Lady Gaga audience. But I wonder if it was also a reference to like techno obsessives. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and you've, you've said how flexible techno is as, is as a genre, but do you ever feel restricted by the expectations or the demands of your like biggest fans? I've not got tired of playing with that <laughs> format for, I don't know, like 24 years or whatever it is. I still, I still have a lot of fun with it. You know, I've, I've not, I've not run out of um, fun to be had with it, with it. And just to touch on the, the Lady Starlight thing again, do you guys have like plans to like get in the studio together or will that just remain a, a live a I, live? Sort I of don't know. I mean, very much we're not going to do anything, you know, it, you have this situation where, oh, if you do a record together, you know, you get more gigs and stuff like that. And we're not really interested in that at all. I mean, I think if we did music together, it would be something really 
it's totally different. It, like, I don't know, glam rock or something like that. But, you know, the, the live techno thing is great because she she's very perceptive. She has a really good ear. And, you know, with improvisation, listening is, is the key, is, is listening to what you're doing, the other person's doing, what's happening, and then reacting to that because it's all... It's like a real-time composition, and um, she's really, really good at, at, at listening to what's happening and reacting to it. You've also got a project trade with uh, Blow On. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm interested in if that's something that you'll continue as like a studio collaboration or if your kind of interest in live improvisation means that will only exist in the live realm now. Have you guys discussed that? Well, we did one release a while back, but the project's changed quite a lot since then. We have actually spoken about doing more studio work it's just figuring out how logistically we're going to make that happen but how did the project first start out and how how has it changed the first gigs that we did were essentially me djing and him synced up with some hardware and kind of jamming over the top but very quickly it became more and more of a live project and eventually the computer went away and it was just two hardware setups he was really good at encouraging me in, in to, to be more brave in that direction. And, you know, I just saw how much fun he was having and how great it sounded. So I was like, yeah, I want to I wanna do so that. So that was quite ins- inspiring to you, really? Yeah, yeah. Before Lady Starlight and Blow On, there was Carl O'Connor, who yeah. people will know as Regis. I mean, when did, you, when did you first meet Carl? I met Carl in the early 90s. It was actually... Um, Mick Harris introduced Carl and I. We were both friends of Mick, but we didn't know each other. We didn't like grow up together or anything like that. But it was it was Mick who introduced us because I'd I'd recorded some music that went on to be my first release in Mick's home studio, and he he played it to Carl, and Carl wanted to put it out, and that's basically how that whole thing started. What were your sort of first impressions of him as a as a person and as someone that you would maybe sort of work with? I don't know, we were just both really shy. <laughs> but um, I don't know, it was just... My memory back then was that anyone I met who was interested in techno, there were just... That was quite few and far between, really. And so you just would hang out and listen to... So <laughs> you're, you're hanging out, you sort of meet through Mick. Uh-huh. Um, what sort of things develop in terms of, like, you guys working together and you getting involved with, like, putting out records on Downwards? Well, I mean, I basically didn't really know him before uh, he put out some records, and we just got to know we got to know each other through doing gigs and stuff like that. So we had quite a long working relationship where he, you know, I was the artist and he was he ran the label before we we did a lot of gigs together, and then just eventually we we did the British Murder Boys project together. Just seemed like it would be fun. Yeah, I mean, you you reformed British Murder Boys for a show in. Tokyo in yeah. 20, 2013. Um, tell me, why did the project go on hiatus for such a long time and, and then why did you decide to pick it up again? I think that we, we were doing a lot of gigs and just felt like, I don't know, just being in being in the machine of doing gigs and just feeling dragged along by something else and not really, I don't know, it wasn't, what, wasn't how we wanted to do it. We didn't know, we didn't exactly know what we wanted to do, but we just knew that this is that was not how we wanted to do it. So, so we we wanted to stop it. And then, the Tokyo show, we just had this idea for some elaborate, very theatrical, <laughs> involving all kinds of frankincense and and people in robes. And <laughs> can you talk us through a, a bit about that 
about that show. Yeah, it was really elaborate and, you know, we managed the whole thing and performed and, you know, that was way too much and I <laughs> I realise that now, but it was it was a really stressful because we were essentially organising and directing and performing the whole thing. But um, it was a lot of fun. We we just had this idea about this this BMB gig more as a concert really you know things like having starting in total darkness and having a huge bank of, of white lights behind us and gradually over the performance the lights get brighter and brighter and in the end they're just blinding the audience and having people in these catholic catholic robes and and burning the frankincense and just really creating a a very sort of ritualistic atmosphere and and really having an effect on the audience i mean i think there's like a fairly proud history in, in uk techno of either like just shit stirring or like confrontation or dark satire uh -huh. is it harder to get away with that stuff now than it was like when you were starting out i don't know i mean maybe it, may just feel, it feels like maybe are we just sort of always just around the corner from like some kind of backlash or like a social media frenzy that maybe didn't exist in the early 90s maybe maybe i don't pay that much attention i don't know i just with me and carl we just we wind each other up but in you know we never went to school together but we always said that it was like if we went to the same school they would have separated us because we we just caught trouble happens when we get together and we wind each other up and just get these crazy ideas and it just goes way too far the into ridiculous absurd kind of territories but it's just really fun and and that's how the tokyo concert came together we just created some really absurd situation in terms of producing making music and djing around around birmingham in the early 90s i guess a huge part of that is the the house of god parties on ra we ran a news piece a, a few years ago about like the 20th anniversary and at that time you you said you'd never experienced as much energy from a crowd as you had at, at parties at house of god uh, -huh. uh do you still maintain that yeah i think so i mean i think i don't know if i told the story about this i just always remember that I always remember DJing there and and uh, a track's playing and I start mixing the next one in and and the just the noise from the crowd was so so loud I couldn't hear so I had to stop mixing it and then I'd start mixing it again and then they'd start cheering again and it would just be like can you like <laughs> no no you just have to whack it in or something I don't know but I just remember this situation where you couldn't you literally couldn't DJ because the crowd was just yelling so much but I mean it was amazing just so just crazy crazy energy but a really good thing and it's still the same with house of god is that it was this weird club for misfits basically all these people who who never used to would never think of going to a nightclub you know they would get turned away because of what they were wearing or something like that so it was this weird group of misfits and leftovers and and it was the same with um, all the people who run it it's like it's not just this uh, one type of person or something like every resident DJ would play a really different selection of records and um, yeah I mean it's kind of still like that now really for the kind of misfits and weirdos it took place at quite a few different venues um, yeah. was there one venue that was like where the sort of the the craziest parties went down or one that you were kind of particularly attached to I think uh, there's one called the dance factory and that was the basement of the Digbeth Institute it's probably a Carling something or other now, but um, 
that was really amazing. And I remember we would uh, we would go and we'd set up loads of extra lights and, and stuff like that. And we had this situation where we had uh, four strobe lights and we'd put red and green gels on them. And they were kind of all se- sequenced in, you know, going round and round. And we would like pump out the, the smoke and test out the lights. And we'd be like falling over because it was so intense. And, you know, I... And we were just totally sober and, you know, before we'd open the club, you know, we, we were really trying to create the most mind-blowing and intense experience. And that's kind of what, what people got. How hands-on was your role in those days in terms of getting getting the, the parties up and running, doing stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, my main role was as a, as a resident DJ there. And I would go and help set up and things like that. I mean, I'm not, I, my role wasn't never too much in the kind of organizational side of things but there was quite there was a big team it was a big group of friends and everyone just performed different roles that you know they were good at basically were you aware of any kind of like dialogue happening with with other cities with like with like a detroit or a berlin in those early days like where were you getting your initial inspiration to be like i want to go in the studio and make techno it was from a lot of different places. I mean, you know, electronic music has been a really big influence for me for a long time before I knew about techno. But, you know, hearing... I was talking with Carl the other day about this. I, I really enjoyed techno in the early 90s where I had no idea where it was coming from. It was these weird records. I didn't know who made them. I'd never seen a picture of them. I didn't know what their name was. It was so kind of abstract. It was like something like relics coming from outer space or something and I really and it didn't really matter I mean it was just it was just this weird music and and the music was very was very very experimental and there was no kind of it wasn't easy to DJ it wasn't clubby and it wasn't made it wasn't made easy there was no no concession to to that it was just very pure and very strange and alien and that's that's what i really loved about it in the beginning i mean it feels like maybe there were a few hallmarks of some some of the techno records in those early days in terms of that some of the downward stuff was very very loopy very groovy how were crowds reacting to that kind of music like you know w- was it necessary to have like a big breakdown in a in a record or could you just like pummel it out well, I mean, when it came to House of God, the, the music was always very varied. I mean, that was the whole ethos of the club and the, the audience and everything like that. But I remember how bizarre it was the first time I played in, um, in Prague in the Czech Republic, maybe late 90s or something. All the other DJs only played records by me and Carl. And I was, it was just, so, what? So <laughs> bizarre. You know, I mean, I would play like a few and mix it up with all kinds of stuff, but I don't know, to have that idea that, and I'm, I'm sure they thought that's what House of God was like, and it really wasn't at all. It was much, it was a lot more f- fun and colour to it, you know. I mean, on a sort of classic House of God night, what kind of music could you hear across the different rooms? I don't know. We've often had like a Northern Soul room. Uh, there's people playing whatever their idea of house is. We, for years and years, we had a, the back room was like dub, hip hop, drum and bass um but in the main room i don't know you could hear anything from (laughs) like hawkwind to gabba pretty much and you know some downwards and and whatever but it depends who it would depend who's playing it is wildly different you know but i mean there's yeah lots of the djs they seem to like playing things that you would 
imagine you couldn't possibly play and they'd find a way of doing it somehow. I guess the other really notable residency you had was, was at Tresor. How did your relationship with, with that club first begin? I think I went and played at the club in the mid-90s. Um, and, yeah, it was just, it was great. There's so much history and the energy. And, um, I don't know, Berlin has a, a very unique, grimy energy. And, you know, um, it was great connecting with, you know, the people behind Basic Channel and Hard Wax and all that kind of stuff, that was a really important thing for me. And I don't know, there's there's just a long time connection there. So yeah, I had a chance to go and play there every month. That was that was really fun. I really feel like I learned a lot about DJing going there every month. And it was great as well, having a chance to pick the person who, who played the whole night with me. I brought, um, like for the first time, brought Arthur uh, Smith Grain over and Ben Sims and all these people who'd, who'd not been and played at, at Trezor before. And what was your, your aim in terms of like booking guests to play alongside you at Trezor? Just people who I, I really like, you know, I, I thought were great DJs and just um, giving them more exposure basically. Was there, a, was there a, like a, an element of you wanting to bring a slice of House of God in terms of encouraging people to play like uh, surprising stuff? In, in a kind of techno context? Um, I think, I don't know, I think House of God's quite a uniquely British institution. Berlin works in a very different way. Everything's much more stretched out. It's more all about an all-night kind of experience. And, and when I was talking about the dance factory, we'd be open at nine and we'd be closed at two. So this whole, it's totally, this intensity's really compressed, whereas the Berlin thing is much more about all night. Obviously, your relationship with Trestor quickly evolved into also being part of the label and you released some sort of really important albums on, on that label. Um, last year, Trestor did a box set that sort of pulled together uh -huh. three of your sort of late 90s uh, LPs. How involved were you in that, in that process and did it sort of lead to you spending some time sort of reflecting on those records? Yeah, I mean, I was involved in the process at, to the extent where I agreed <laughs> to let them do it but no I was happy for them to re-release it because I think I think it was it's a good time to reevaluate that music and bring it to people who've not heard it before and you know hear, hear it played in in current sets and things like that working with Trezor was great because they were really good about I would I would literally deliver an album like on a dat tape and they would just accept it and put it out as it was you know they wouldn't try and A&R it you know, and I think they were really good about working with the artists. If they had a clear vision of what they wanted to do, they would really go with that. And if not, they would help people out, you know, as they needed it. So they, they were a really, really good label to work with. On top of that, you've obviously had a couple of uh, your own labels. I wanted to ask you about like, so they're called Dynamic Tension and Counterbalance. Can you tell me about the process that goes into naming a label or a track or a mix? It feels like something that you've clearly put a lot of thought into down the years um, because especially, you know, dynamic tension, it feels like it really speaks to the kind of stuff you're trying to do musically. Is that true or is that just... I think with both those, both the names of the labels, it was more like I realised what it meant literally years after I'd I'd named it. And, and I think essentially they, I realised as well that both of them actually mean the same thing in a, in a way. It's just about, it's just about balance and tension really. Maybe that's that's a fundamental part of minimalist music for me about 
the balance and tension between the elements or frequencies or something like that. It's just about kind of describing that in a way. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's it's some. I don't know. I it's, guess it's elusive. Yeah, it, it's something that comes to me, and I really I understand it years later, literally. Obviously, Surgeon itself is a very evocative name, but you've put out some music under your given name. Mm -hmm. A recent one was the electronic recordings from Maui Jungle. Mm -hmm. What was that like making music in, in the Hawaiian jungle and how did that come about? I've been going there, over, uh, spending quite a bit of time there over the last six, seven years. And I've got some friends out there and I go and stay with them. And um, they have a big property and um, part of it's really it's really like in the rainforest essentially and they've got this little hut and one year I I went down there and I recorded the sound of the crickets and I remember the next year at free rotation I did an ambient set and I played this recording of crickets like for the whole I don't know two hours or whatever like laying it underneath the the set and then I don't know I had this idea well I've recorded the crickets so why don't I actually go and record music instead of like doing the field recording i i literally sit in this hut and i play music through you know i perform music on a keyboard through speakers and i set up the recorder and so i'm recording the music but i'm recording also the the environmental sound all around me and uh, i think it's very different to record electronic music acoustically in that way as well so that was the idea behind it but it was it was purely a personal project and I sent it to Carl and he got really excited about it and he told me, oh, you should send it to um, Peter at Edition, Editions Mego and he wanted to put it out. So that's, that's how it came about. There's often a misconception with it that I recorded field recordings and then recorded some kind of modular thing and combined them, whereas the kind of the point of it was that I was actually, I was literally... It was all done in that place. Yeah, yeah. It was like, this is what was happening at the time I recorded this music. And what did you feel like you learned from that experience as an artist in terms of like the importance of, a, of place, like, ma making it a, like making music in Maui versus making music in Birmingham? Yeah, very. It has, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Maui is a very special place. It has a very unique, uh, strong atmosphere and sitting, you know, sitting in the jungle, it's it's... You know, people imagine Maui to be very relaxing, but it's actually really, really intense how much life there is around you and birds and insects and vines. And so, yeah, it sh for sure, it had a really uh, powerful effect on um, the music. You know, I would never have made that music uh, had I been at home. So it was just a really good exercise. But it was also a part of my journey of um, getting into the idea of live improvised music and just really feeling and hearing what's happening and reacting and really opening myself up and not trying to control and um, plan you know it's just making music in the moment and and learning about the power of that that was really kind of the start of that for me the the Maui recording and I guess the, the sort of mental state that you got into making that music I mean editions Mago called it like an exercise in concentration and trance and I, I wonder what this sort of taps into sort of inside of you I mean you, you're keen yoga enthusiast as well like is there is there a link there well everything <laughs> everything's yeah it, it all goes into the same soup pot or, or something like that I don't yeah they it's it's definitely connected to I don't know I mean music 
and yoga can both uh you know affect your your state of mind and your consciousness so so it's just there there's just different ways of of um doing that same thing in a way if you if you break it down to a really fundamental level i think we've got to cut to some uh, audience questions now i've got a hand up here uh hello uh tony how are you how are you good thanks Okay, so I have two small questions for you. And the first one is, is they say, they, you say that the universe is absurd, uh -huh. but <laughs> if the universe is absurd, what's your message through the music you, you do? And the second one is that if you believe in natural selection and you were chosen by the machines <laughs> to generate a special collectivity to feel life, or just is another way of human entertainment? So, yeah, I, I think um, if I have a message, it's about to kind of... Uh, question everything and any never never assume that something is the way that it has to be i don't know that's a kind of general <laughs> quite vague general idea but it's just about you know recognizing a system or a framework and and looking at it and and saying why you know does it have to be this way can i can i change it can i do something else with it what was the second one something about humans and machines <laughs> yeah it's you know you, you believe in in natural selection because you were chosen by machines. That is the nature at the same time. You know, nature is machine. Nature, nature is like the humanity, the technology, natural selection to be to do this. You know, like or do you say it is or do you think it is just luck or do you think it is you know like like another way of of just entertainment, human entertainment? What do you think about it? I don't know why or how I I'm doing what I'm doing. It's I've I've got no idea how how it happened, but um, I don't know anything else. So. You know, this is the only thing that I know, and um, you know, I so a situation like um, performing in a club. I that's one example where I see I see it operating on many, many, many different levels. So you have the you have the level which is purely people could see as purely entertainment, and that's fine. They can come and be entertained, but someone could come to the same event and have a, I don't know, like some kind of religious experience or something like that, and have their their I don't know something fundamental in their view of the universe changed so these are two drastically different levels that that could um, occur in the same like situation like aliens or entities uh, <laughs> uh, I don't I'm not so no. sure about that I know I I mean I don't look at it in such a literal way as that but um, no I just see uh, everything operates on on so many different levels okay. the same same situation okay we've got a question here in the front row I just wanted to ask you about Birmingham. Um, cause <laughs> do, I, do, you, do you come from there? Yeah, so oh. I, I grew up in Birmingham um, and Dance Factory is actually the first club that I went to oh, okay. when I was about 16. So, so I used to go to House of God and Atomic Jam and uh -huh. everything like that. Um, and I felt like at the time there was something really amazing happening in the city. It was a really thriving techno scene. But now it feels like it doesn't really, it doesn't feel like a techno city anymore. Um, sure. And I just wanted to kind of ask you, like, I don't know, like, not quite like what happened, but like what's your point of view on? Yeah, um, on I I think I definitely saw that where you know there was there was a really strong sense of community and um, you know with the people doing the parties and the people coming to the parties and uh, there was such a great energy. But I think like like everything, it you know these things come and go, and um, I don't know why. I mean, I just remember it always being so difficult to. The issue with venues there you know we we had so few to choose from that that always seemed to be um a problem in birmingham so i don't know i mean i see i see 
that there are some techno events, but I, I haven't had the chance to go to them. But so I don't know, I don't know how it's how it's doing there. I don't know if it's just because everyone got older and there wasn't this fresh crop of promoters coming through because it felt like Atomic Jam and House of God were the kind of dominant nights. Just getting but, older and older. Well, yeah, for, for for good reason. But I never saw this this new wave of promoters. Yeah, I, I saw I saw some newer events, but you know, like I say, I didn't get the chance to go and check them out so I don't know how maybe it just didn't set root somehow I I don't I don't know yeah but it, was, it was good times so. though yeah yeah for sure <laughs> cool uh, any others oh, one here you mentioned your performance depends a lot on the interaction with the audience how important is the that the audience would be critical about your performance to you I mean the interaction is about I don't know it's like on a kind of energy level just feeling feeling what what's really connecting with the audience you know it's just it's this kind of feeling it's quite hard to describe but I can just tell when things click together and that's what I'm searching for so yeah I mean that's definitely in a that's like a positive feeling when that happens so that's kind of what I'm searching for and I just uh, I keep looking until I find that thank you uh, there's some at the back as well my question was like in 2013, I think you gave an interview. Well, you were one of the interviewees for Resident Advisor about the renaissance in the industrial techno scene has been just emerging again. And do you feel like after those three years that it has come to a point where it might have been a bit overloaded, or you feel that it's grown naturally in, in a very like uh, healthy way? It's not overloaded by new artists, new labels, and, and such. I think. Um I always have quite an issue with like genres and stuff like that. I mean, I I almost haven't even have an issue with the definition of like techno and ambient. To me, in a way, music's all the same thing, really. It's just what I enjoy or connect to. And so, when when things are la you know labeled as industrial techno, I don't know. It just makes me makes me cringe a bit, really. And uh, I don't know. I always feel like there's always good interesting music to find it's just if I'm not finding it then that's because I'm not looking in the right place that's that's what I've always gone by and I think you can always find interesting music um, you just have to if you're not finding it where you're currently looking you need to look somewhere else that's that's sort of the the thing that I go by so I don't really worry too much about I don't know industrial techno or or whatever I mean there's there's just a lot of really great music about you just have to find it Nice. Uh, I know there were other questions. I'm sorry, we've we've run out of time. But yeah, I'd like to finish by um, saying thanks to Tony for coming down. Oh, yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Thank you.